Good morning, everybody. Um, get this all ready. Um, sorry, I thought I was ready and I wasn't. See, that just gives me a couple extra minutes to breathe and be ready to be here with you all. Um, it is really an honor and a privilege to get to be here and share with you all this morning, um, to get to share with you about the difference that Jesus has made in my life. Um, so thank you for giving me your ear for this next little bit, and I just really hope that you'll find it encouraging and energizing to your own walk with Jesus. Um, being a follower of Jesus has been something that's been pretty central to my life pretty much for as long as I can remember. I grew up in a family that believed in and followed Jesus. We went to church every Sunday, Sunday school and worship service. Um, I even attended private Christian school from grade four up. We had a really cool house. I loved the house that I grew up in. It had this extra space on the third floor that were extra bedrooms. So whenever there were missionaries in town visiting, we would get to host those people. So as a young kid, I got to meet people who were serving and following Jesus with their whole life. So people from Africa, people living in South America, people living in the Caribbean, just to make it their full-time vocation to love and, and to follow and to share with other people about Jesus. So even though I know it was well-intentioned, um, oftentimes, growing up in such a saturated environment, the principles that my Sunday school teachers, my family, and um, the Christian school teachers, sometimes the things that they were teaching me made me feel like my close relationship with Jesus was depending on how I behaved, what my habits were. It was something that that nearness to him was something that I needed to earn and something that I needed to maintain and deserve. Um, so there were rituals like daily devotions, weekly church attendance, listening to a select group of approved Christian music artists, not doing a select group of activities such as swearing or smoking. Um, these were the things that I felt like were going to make or break my good, close relationship with Jesus. So I was pretty sure that when Jesus died and sacrificed his life for me and I, I decided to follow him, that I was saved, that my eternal destiny was taken care of. But I kind of felt like from that point on, from that decision, I, I just figured that my nearness to him and my sense of closeness to him depended on me. It fell on me to behave and act and do all the right things to keep that relationship close. Um, if you went to high school in the 90s like I did, you might have worn a WWJD bracelet on your wrist. If you're older than me or younger than me and that doesn't ring a bell, that stands for what would Jesus do? So it was this reminder to judge all of my own actions and my words against the imagined choices that Jesus would make if he were in my situation. Basically, keep yourself in line. This kind of thinking left me feeling really good, or we could call it prideful, self-righteous, um, whenever I was doing good, staying close to Jesus. But it also left me feeling really awful and undeserving of nearness to him in the times that I failed to live up to that standard. The thing about guilt and condemnation is that they really are not good motivators for better behavior. I cannot be the only person in this room who has eaten a donut on account of feeling bad for having already eaten a donut that I shouldn't have eaten to start off with. Um, so even though there's this core part of my being that authentically desires to be close to Jesus, determining my sense of belonging to him and my sense of nearness to him based on my own efforts, it just has this way of slingshotting me even farther away from him. 
As I've experienced more of life, I've gone through seasons where I felt really close to Jesus, and I've also gone through seasons where I felt distant and disconnected. But it's with incredible gratitude that standing before you today, I can tell you that Jesus has really graciously revealed himself to me as the initiator, and the one who's upon, upon whose strengths and abilities my relationship with him depends. Specifically, he's not just the one who pursued me to save me, but he continues to pursue me on a daily basis. God's described in the Bible as many ways. They talk about, the Bible talks about he's the vine and we're the branches. He's the potter and we're the clay. In both of these examples, he's the capable one and we're the one who is impacted by his abilities. Another really meaningful way that Jesus is described in Scripture comes from John 10, where we're told that Jesus is the good shepherd and we are his sheep. So I'm going to go ahead and read that passage now. It's John 10, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. I tell you the truth. Anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. After he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they don't know his voice. Those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant, so he explained it to them. I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him, and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't really care about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and they know me. Just as my father knows me, and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, too, that are not in the sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock with one shepherd. So I really love this description of Jesus as a good shepherd. It's a really tender and loving portrait that is so inviting for someone who's just really weary of trying to deserve their right standing with God. So as we move forward and I share with you what I think is compelling about Jesus as a good shepherd, I'm going to share three ways that it's been particularly meaningful for me. First, how the good shepherd gives us an identity and a sense of belonging. Second, how he provides us with security by his ability to care for us. And lastly, how we can rely on him to lead and guide us. So first, let's look at how the sheep belong to the good shepherd. I'm really comforted by the way that this scripture describes his voice and our ability to recognize it as a statement of fact, not as something to be accomplished. We don't have to grow to deserve it. In verse 3, it says, the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name. So it doesn't say that the sheep need to go through hearing 101. It doesn't say that some of the sheep are really special and they can hear and they can figure it out and the rest of the sheep just have to learn how to hear from the shepherd secondhand through those special sheep. Um, And it doesn't say that the shepherd is trying to trick them or he's only going to speak to them when they decide to get near to him. It just says he is the good shepherd and I am his sheep. 
I belong to him because he claimed me. Now, I don't declare any expert status on sheep farming. Um, I'm not even a novice at sheep farming. But I feel okay supposing that these sheep don't um, get to choose who they want to be their shepherd. They don't put an ad on Craigslist for their ideal shepherd. They don't have this Tinder for sheep app, and they swipe right or left deciding if they like them or not. Um, The fact that they get to belong to the flock is purely because of the goodness and because of the pursuit of the good shepherd. This is something that I'm honestly still kind of sorting out, but with each passing day, I'm coming to believe that every single way in which I get to relate to God and be in relationship with him is due to his pursuit of me. It's because of his efforts, and it's because of his grace. It's his grace that puts the hunger in me for belonging, and then it's him that answers that belonging with his very own self. For decades, I felt like I lucked out pretty well because I was raised in a family that taught me about Jesus. But from that point on, I had darn darn well better do enough pursuing of Jesus by reading my Bible, praying, serving, and telling other people about him. Add to this that I've ended up being in full-time ministry for most of my adult life, and there's just been a lot of pressure to perform. Faith seemed to me like fitness. It's something that I would have if I worked hard enough. And just like faith and fitness, um, it's easy to allow the feelings that accompany failure to just slingshot you even farther away from where you wanted to be. So what really changed this perspective for me lately? Um, Last summer, I got, at the end of the summer, I got a text from Frank, and it said, do you want to run a half marathon? Um, and I responded, right now? And, of course, he didn't mean right then, um, but what he was letting me know was that uh, Jim and Gail Schroeder had decided that instead of running the half marathon in Philly in November, they were going to have a baby in February instead. So um, with those plans, their bibs were up for grabs. And even though it had been two pregnancies, five years, and an undisclosed number of pounds since the last time I ran in a race... I said yes, and it just felt like something I knew I needed to do. So I printed up my training schedule, and off I went. Um, Deciding to train for the half marathon was really the only reason that I would, a few weeks later, find myself in the place that I did, that I encountered something that really impacted me. Um, There I was in the parking lot of Planet Fitness at 10 p.m. on a Saturday night post-workout listening to the radio. Um, Terry Gross was interviewing Pastor Nadia Boltz-Weber, and I had one of those NPR driveway moments where I just got so caught up, and I, I, was, I just loved what I was hearing, and I, I couldn't turn it off. Um, during this interview, uh, she described, she, Pastor Nadia, described this God who pursues in a way that just really stuck with me, and it turned this earn-your-belongingness attitude that I had totally upside down. Um, so Terry was asking Pastor Nadia, explain to me what you mean when you say you have this gift of faith. And I'm just going to read to you um, from the transcript of what she said. Now, she's a very dynamic writer and speaker, so I'm going to do my very best to get her, um, her uh, intonation across. But you can also listen to this uh, podcast for yourself if you want to hear. So this is what uh, Nadia Boltzwobert said. She said, well, it doesn't feel like I chose or that I even work for it, to tell you the truth. It's just it doesn't really feel like I have a choice. It feels like God's really come after me, is constantly sort of hunting me down in a way. I mean, I was at a Q&A recently, and this really earnest young seminarian was like, Pastor Nadia, what do you do to personally get closer to God? 
And like before I even knew I and before I even knew what I was saying, I was like, what? Nothing. Why would I do that? Like half the time I wish he'd leave me alone. Like if I'm going to try to get closer to God, I'm going to end up having to love someone I don't like or give away more of my money or be confronted with some horrible inconsistency about myself and be called to repent. None of those things. I'm not interested in those things. They keep happening to me, but it's not because I've climbed some sort of spiritual ladder and I'm constantly pursuing God. God's pursuing me. To me, this is the glory of getting to belong to the good shepherd. If I have faith, it's because he put it in me. Even if I don't have it in me to practice all the spiritual disciplines that should keep me sharp and keep me holy, he is still going to pursue me and remind me that I belong to him. He has made me able to recognize his voice, and he never stops speaking and never stops pursuing. This is also comforting to think about when I think about the people that I care about. Um, think back for a minute to that WWJD bracelet. I've long carried the burden of feeling like I have to have a good enough faith walk, not only to keep up my own relationship with Jesus, but to also help other people to get to know him. I thought that my behavior and my faith walk were going to be the primary way that other people would see me and want to pursue Jesus as well. So I always thought that staying near to him was my responsibility for other people, um, I know that it was with a good intention, um, and I appreciated it at the time, but I'm really actually kind of critical of something that I remember someone saying to me in high school. They said, your life might be the only Bible a person may ever read. Um, I just bore that responsibility like a burden. It's way too weighty for me to carry. Um, so it just feels like a beautiful relief to know that Jesus is a good shepherd, is not just pursuing me, but he's pursuing other people who I care about. In this scripture, Jesus says, I have other sheep too, not in the sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock with one shepherd. It's a pretty ridiculous burden to put on myself that I have to be not only a good enough sheep to deserve a good standing with my shepherd, but that I also have to be a good enough sheep to convince other sheep that they should want him to be their shepherd too. Um, when I feel like my habits and my behaviors are so important, Jesus just pulls me aside and says, listen, I've got this. I've got you. I've got these other sheep that you can see. I even have these other sheep that you don't even know exist. Now just go eat some grass. <laughs> it's all well and good to have this sense of belonging, um, knowing that Jesus is pursuing us. But we've also all had experience with leaders who are hurtful to us, people that are just in it because they enjoy controlling people or they're just not cut out to be a good leader. That's the next way I want to look at how Jesus makes a good shepherd. We can compare him and, and see that as a leader, he really cares for his sheep. When this scripture is talking about the other shepherds who came before, the ones that were thieves and robbers, it's going back to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34 in the Old Testament. So Ezekiel's describing these deadbeat shepherds of Israel. They didn't really care for the sheep. It says that they loved all the perks of being in charge of the sheep. They got the wool. They got to make cheese out of the, out of the milk from the sheep. They made lamb chops out of the choicest from the flock. But they didn't actually care for the sheep, and there was no effort that could be wasted on the less thens of the flock. So if they were injured or they were sick, they were just out of luck. The ones who wandered away were not sought after. They were just left to be lost. So when you contrast this with the good shepherd, you get a really wonderful picture of his tender care for us. He binds up the wounds of the injured. He cares for the sick. 
He knows them by name, so when one in a hundred goes missing, he goes out in search of them. Nobody is disqualified from belonging to his flock. He's not in in it for the fleece or for the lamb chops. He deals tenderly with our shortcomings. While thieves and robbers come with the intent to steal and kill and destroy, the good shepherd states his purpose clearly. He wants to come that his sheep would have a rich and satisfying life. So the good shepherd's also contrasted with the hired hand. When the predator shows up, the hired hand who's just in it for the money is out of there, doesn't even care, doesn't want to risk his own skin for the sheep. In the good shepherd, not only do we have someone who truly cares for us, but someone who will sacrifice his own life for us. That WWJD bracelet wasn't the only thing that I ever put on my body to try to impact my behaviors and my habits and my holiness. I grew up in a non-denominational Protestant church, so all the crosses that I ever saw were just plain and empty. Um, I thought that Jesus on the cross of the crucifix was kind of gruesome and unnecessary, and I didn't understand why my Catholic friends thought it was worth having around. Um, but there was one point as a zealous teen when I was trying really hard to do as many of the right things and as few as the, of the wrong things as I could that I turned to that crucifix thinking that gra- bearing that graphic image on my hands um, would help me to bear the heaviness of my sin that sent Jesus to the cross. So I had a ring that was like a crucifix um, that wrapped around my finger. I had the thought that if I can wear this ring and it guilts me into not sinning, it's like I just saved Jesus from suffering a little bit. When I look back, though, I think that that perspective would probably really make Jesus ache. If, God forbid, I should have to take a bullet for one of my kids, the last thing that I would want was for them to go around the rest of their life carrying an image of my bloody body to remind them to get good grades and to be a good citizen. When Jesus reminds us that the good shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep, it's not an attempt to guilt us into acting right or staying close to him. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep to tell them this. You might be lame and you might be sick, but you are mine. I will go to any length to protect and to preserve you. The good shepherd frees me from being motivated by guilt. His sacrifice assures me that nothing, no enemy from without, no sin from within, can separate me from him. Now, knowing that uh, I belong to Jesus and that he cares for me, that takes care of a lot of the big picture issues of my life. Um, I can find a lot of ease and freedom in this relationship with him, knowing that it falls so heavily on his strong shoulders. But the final point that I want to look at has to do with how I respond to the Good Shepherd on a day-to-day basis. So now we're going to go to the third point where we explore where the shepherd leads his sheep and how that gives me daily guidance about how to spend myself. When we look back at verse 4 of John 10, it says, After he had gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they don't know his voice. Again, I just really fall back on, and I'm totally astounded by how matter-of-factly this scripture says, you will know his voice. I kind of relate it to my cell phone, so stay with me for a second. Um, I have no idea whatsoever how the AT&T wireless network is set up. Um, I could operate an iPhone and probably break an iPhone, but I could never make it actually do its job. Um, So however AT&T and my iPhone work, I don't get it. But no matter where I am, whether I'm sitting at home on my couch or I'm in Kalamazoo, if somebody calls my number, my phone rings. 
we take this mind-boggling man-made technology totally for granted, even though we use it every day of our life. But when you think about it, it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, so what kind of stretches it for us to just take God at his word when he says, I can speak to you, you can hear me, I'll tell you where to go. For me, it turns out that I need this constant communication and guidance in order to make it through every single day. While I have this great promise that I have this good shepherd who uses his, voice, uses his voice to lead me, there are a lot of other competing voices that I have to contend with. A lot of these voices exist because I'm a spiritual being who's stuck living inside of flesh. When I used to give a talk about listening prayer to teens that were coming to Philly for a short-term mission trip, I would always describe my flesh as sounding like this. Stay in bed, eat donuts all day. I really like to talk about donuts. Maybe that's why Brad asked me to to speak today, because we get the donut thing. Um, I already edited at least two instances that didn't really fit where I tried to fit donuts into this talk. Um, But anyway, back to my flesh. Living in flesh means that I have all sorts of voices that are trying to guide me. There's this lazy and gluttonous side of my flesh that wants to have donuts delivered to my bed and have zero obligations or work to do. Then there's this other extreme, this selfish ambition that is ready to work hard and get things done, but totally loses it on my kids if they interfere with my ability to get something done. So I scream at them because I just want to finish an email and they want another bowl of Lucky Charms. That selfish ambition part of my flesh is really a hard worker, but has zero compassion for anybody or anything that gets into my way. And then there's this other voice, and this has become my number one struggle in the past five years of my life. Anxiety got a little pushy with me after my first baby was born, but then backed off after the early postpartum weeks. When my second baby was born, she came back with much more persistence and just made herself right at home in my brain. Every time I would walk past a set of stairs, anxiety would say, you are probably going to fall down the stairs holding your baby. She tells me that bad things are going to happen and that I'm not going to be able to handle them when they do. She points out how many sinkholes I've been noticing around the Philadelphia streets and convinces me that my family is probably going to fall into a minivan-sized sinkhole to our death any day now. So sometimes she whispers and sometimes she shouts, but let me tell you, she is relentless. If my refrigerator is empty, anxiety will say, good job taking care of your family. They're probably going to eat corn dogs and cereal again for dinner tonight, and your husband is probably so pissed off at you, he has to do so much because you just can't get it together. Oddly enough, if my refrigerator is full, anxiety still has something to say. She'll say, like you are ever going to cook all of that food. Half of that produce is going to get thrown away. There are people that are starving, and all you are doing is wasting, wasting, wasting. Don't you feel great about yourself? Food and money are both these really ripe areas for anxiety to tear me up, so it's probably not surprising that the day that I had the revelation that I needed to deal with my anxiety pharmaceutically was on a trip to Sam's Club. Feeding my family and staying on a budget had become so unnecessarily overwhelming that the decision about whether to buy bulk frozen vegetables at Sam's Club or to buy smaller portions of frozen vegetables at ShopRite on another shopping trip 
just paralyzed me. It felt like this high-stake decision that I was just too paralyzed to make. My stomach was tied up in knots, and I remember pushing my cart through the aisles just trying to say, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. And if I could just say it over and over again, I thought maybe those words would convince my mind and my body that the reality of God providing for me was, was the real thing and that this anxiety didn't have to be real. Um, it didn't work, though. As many times as I said, thank you, Jesus, I couldn't get it to work. As my racing heart and my sweaty palms and my trembling hands loaded my groceries into my family's van that day, I said out loud, I can never come back to this place again unless I get therapy or medication. I really did. (laughs) So even as I identified and planned to deal with this ugly foe named anxiety, she continued to barrage me for the weeks between making an appointment with my doctor and picking up my first prescription. She would say things like, you probably wouldn't need drugs if you did your devotions every day and prayed more. In case it's not clear, anxiety is a big, fat liar. Sometimes it's easier to recognize when you repeat her words out loud. And even knowing logically that she's a liar and having some medication to help tone her down, I still find myself desperately clinging to the Good Shepherd when it comes to figuring out how to spend myself. Those fleshly voices, either my lack of ambition or my misdirected ambition or anxiety, they can just be utterly paralyzing. But when I have this good and gentle shepherd who promises to go ahead of me and speak to me and tell me where to go, I can emerge out of that paralyzed state. I don't have to figure it out. I can stop. I can take a breath. I can listen to him. And then I can shut anxiety and her friends up, and I can do the simple things that require life to move forward, like planning meals and grocery shopping and carrying my kids downstairs. So for me, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where I experience the difference that Jesus makes. Having a good shepherd that leads me and speaks to me has shaped huge major decisions in my life, like deciding to move to Philadelphia when I was 22. As a Midwestern grade schooler, when I came to visit Philadelphia, my main takeaway was that the East Coast was a really rude place and I would never want to live here. Um, But then I spent a summer here during college, and Jesus lured me here and just broke my heart for this place. And it was kind of like, at that point, there was no other choice. I was led here by the Good Shepherd, and now this place is home sweet, kind of rude home. (laughs) Another big life example, like agreeing with Frank when he came and sat on my couch and said, I think you're my wife. Um, Even though at that point, we had only known each other for three months, um, and he was only seven months sober, and also only seven months out of jail. Like, there's nothing crazy about that, right? Um, so knowing that Frank was right, that he was my husband and that God had a life plan for us is something that I can only credit to the guidance of my good shepherd. There've been so many big choices in my life that have just been guided by this voice that it almost feels like instead of me pursuing a path, this path was pursuing me. And maybe that path's name is goodness and maybe that path's name is mercy. And another more recent example like deciding out of the blue to run a half marathon, and then as a result, encountering this idea about Jesus' pursuit of me that pretty much made me have to toss out that measuring stick that I was using to every day judge myself as unworthy. I discovered that running was a way that Jesus really liked to talk to me. So even though I made up a soundtrack of a bunch of songs to keep me moving and energized, he would just kind of break through and talk to me anyway. 
When my favorite songs from my arrogant and self-righteous teen years would come on, Jesus would help me to tenderly apply grace to that memory of my former self. When songs that I used to enjoy with long-lost friends would come up, he would nudge me to reach out to them, and I got to savor that sweetness of reconnecting. And incidentally, this new way of thinking that was much more free, along with that physical exertion of running, allowed me to cut my daily anxiety meds in half. I still need them. They are still God's grace to me. But he has expressed his grace and pursuit in a hundred other ways to help me be a more peace-filled person. Hearing that message from Pastor Nadia truly truly rescued me from a really miserable place where I was just singing duets with my anxiety, songs of self-condemnation and total preoccupation with all of my spiritual and practical shortcomings. So whether it's in these big decisions or life, or in these really ordinary moments, I have this good shepherd whose voice sounds so different than the accusations of my anxiety or my over or under ambitious self. So when anxiety tells me that I'm failing in every way a person can, my shepherd says, come on, let's go find some, some green pastures and still waters. I'm exactly where I am, and I have this chance to be well and enjoy this rich and satisfying life because I belong to and because I'm cared for and because I'm guided by a good shepherd. So for me and for anyone else who wants to claim it for themselves, that's the difference that Jesus can make. I have a few suggested takeaways for how Jesus can make the same kind of difference in your own life. And since my whole talk has been about not trying to be good enough but relying on God's goodness, don't worry. If you choose not to do any of these things, Jesus very well might decide to hunt you down and harass you in some other kind of way. But here are some ideas of what I think can help. One, strive to recognize his pursuit. If you're going to strive for something, strive to recognize his pursuit. So if you're, really like, if you're like me and you really struggle with self-discipline and spiritual discipline, then instead of trying to worry about adding one more thing to your life to try to be closer to Jesus, just think about how to recognize where he is already pursuing you in your ordinary, everyday life. So right here, right now, nothing else that anybody has, any of us has to do in these next five seconds. Let's just ask him, Jesus, will you please help us to recognize your pursuit of me? Bam, that's it. The ball is in his court. You may all go about your life. A second idea, release other people's beliefs and behaviors to his pursuit. If you find yourself burdened by the decisions and actions of other people, you're probably not actually doing them or yourself any good. Even in the ways that we can help and show love and care for other people, it's always complementary to the better and deeper work that Jesus can do. So try this. Next time you feel worried or discouraged because of someone else's actions or behaviors, squeeze your hands up into a fist, tight as you can get them. Then imagine that person being released to be pursued by Jesus while you fling your hands open. Yes, Jesus very well might give you ideas and energy to speak to or care for that person, and he might pursue them through your actions. But take a back seat to the Good Shepherd. And lastly... Identify and visit your own green pastures. Well, we can enjoy hearing from God and spending time feeling near to Jesus while we go about everyday life. There's also something really valuable about pulling back from the hectic pace of life and just going away with him with a simple simple intention of resting alongside of him. 
Psalm 23 talks about the shepherd who makes us lie down in green pastures and leads us beside still waters. Sometimes the environment that we create can help us to make this happen. So maybe you can sit at a favorite coffee shop, take a walk by the Wissahickon Trail, um, take advantage of Penn Campus's lush green grass. Maybe you can light some candles or turn on some calming music. Maybe you can go for a run. Maybe you can take a nap. Maybe you can sit in your bed and eat a donut. Just do something without the intention of accomplishing anything except letting Jesus restore your soul. If there's a place that you love or a thing that you love to do, we can pretty assuredly give Jesus credit for making you that way. So I think that he would really enjoy meeting you in those places that you already enjoy being. Thanks so much for just letting me share my heart with you today and share the difference that Jesus has made. I hope that you found it encouraging. I hope that you feel energized towards allowing him to do the same for you. So let me pray for us now. God, thank you so much for being this pursuer of us. Thank you that we can bring our failures and our shortcomings and our good intentions and our pride and arrogance. We can bring all those things Um, And they just don't mean anything next to how strong your love and your pursuit is. And I pray that you would just be hiding behind quarters and jumping out at us. I pray that you would infuse yourself into every aspect of our day and give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand so that we could enjoy more and more of you. Just keep us from these lying voices that try to make us pull away from you and try to keep us from enjoying the goodness that you have for us. God, I ask for this rich and satisfying life to be ours so that, so that we can enjoy you, so that we can um, just have everyone see how great you are. We love you, and we think that you're worth it. We think that you're worth this difference that you make in our life, and, and so we want to follow you back. We want to pursue you back, but we rest in your abilities. So we just give all these things and give our lives up to you in Jesus' name.